Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. All right, well, Lord, we thank you so much for tonight. We thank you, God, for your word and that we get to study it. We ask you, Lord, that you would help us tonight as we jump in to the book of Revelation to get greater clarity about you, your purposes, and what you're doing in Jesus' name. Amen. And if we can bring down those lights a little bit, the stage lights are too hot. Don't need to come all the way down, just come down a little bit, be good. Okay, well, uh, tonight is uh, our study in the book of Revelation. Uh, We've made it two-thirds of the way through what we're going to do here. And uh, tonight is entitled, The Work of the Three Demon Spirits. This is, now if we can bring the house lights up, yeah. House lights up, house lights all the way up, just go. There you go, that a boy. Uh, <clears throat> all right. So, uh, what we've been doing here in uh, this series is we've been looking at various aspects of the Book of Revelation, and we've been, in some cases, taking by faith this concept: if God wrote it in the Book of Revelation, it has to matter. It can't just be there for no reason. The book of Revelation is the only book that starts off with the promise that if you read it, there is a blessing that will happen in your life. It's the only book in the the word that says that if you apply these things, if you take to heart what is written, there's a blessing that will be on your life. Now, take to heart what is written sounds like an easy charge when you're reading a Bible verse that would follow that like, you know, blessed are the meek. It's like, okay, I could get behind that. I could see why that would be a blessing on my life if I'm meek. It's really difficult at a glance to go, my life will be blessed if I study the three demon spirits in the book of Revelation chapter 16. Your life will be blessed. And the reason that we can know that is because God didn't mince words. And every aspect of the book of Revelation has purpose and meaning. And so tonight as we look at these three that are wrapped up in the uh, sixth bowl, for those of you who have been uh, going through this study with us, tonight will serve as a little bit of an introduction to the sixth bowl of wrath. That'll actually be our next session. But what we decided a long time ago was we're going to go through the book of Revelation slow enough that we don't miss anything, or at least that we don't miss anything that we knew was there, we just didn't have time to cover. We decided we're going to go slow enough to try to actually understand and get the book of Revelation as thoroughly as we could. So what we're going to do is uh, we're going to look at Revelation 16, 12 through 15. Again, it's the sixth bowl, but we're not going to focus so much on the bowl. We're going to focus on the ministry assignment of these three demons in Revelation 16 because it's a very interesting part of the future of, uh, of planet Earth. Revelation 16, uh, it's top of the page there. If you guys have got the notes, if you don't have a copy of the notes and you want one, put your hand in the air. Also, uh, we've got uh, copies uh, that will be handed out, uh, or or rather, we've got copies online. Um, It looks like we have no notes and that I just fibbed to all of you. So congratulations, there are no notes. Uh, Can someone on senior staff do your best to try to remedy that situation? Uh, Okay, all right, good. Um, So notes perhaps will be passed out. In the meantime, they are available online. So I'll read it slow, because that's what I'd want you to do to me. If I was out there, I'd want you to read it slow so I could hear it. So pay attention, Revelation 16, 12 through 15. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. 
Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, that's the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So just as a little trivia point, this is the only time the word Armageddon is used in the Bible. And, uh, and so if you're ever thinking about Armageddon or that's a term you've heard before, it's only mentioned one time and it's right here in Revelation 16 in this sixth bowl. And uh, we'll talk more about what that is in our next session because that's going to be the main focus. Tonight, I want to talk about these three impure spirits or, or unclean spirits or demon spirits. It uses uh, all those terms depending on your translation. And uh, talk about what's going on here because this is super bizarre. Why are frog demons coming out of anybody's mouth? And when they come out, why do they go do anything? And why would anyone listen to them? And yet all of those strange facts are all very much a part of the narrative here in Revelation chapter 16. So we're going to talk about these three and what they're doing, what's going on here. First, the term unclean or impure spirits tells us that these are not neutral. It's not an activity of the Holy Spirit, uh, that they're not... Um, you know, physical beings in the, in the sense of like a, a, you know, a human. They're spirits, but they come out of the mouth of these three, and then they go and do stuff. So these are demonic creatures. I gave you a bunch of verses there uh, in the notes when they do finally make around to you uh, that uh, indicate all the different places in Scripture that talk about the activity of demons in the Bible, and that that's a very well-founded part of the Bible. It may not be a part that we like. It may not be a part that we enjoy or even really want to look at, but we can't ignore it because it's in the Word of God actually to help us live our lives better with more clarity. You know, if there is in fact a storm coming, I would rather be warned ahead of time as opposed to just find myself in the middle of it and be surprised. So the fact of demons in the Bible, their activity and their, you know, bad things that they do is part of uh, just biblical Christianity. All right. Next, their frog-like appearance. So weird. It says specifically, I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. So it doesn't say that they are frogs. It says that they looked like frogs. I want to give you a kind of a, an interesting um, connection point. We looked at this a little bit when we kind of looked more deeply at the demons in Revelation. But if you guys can picture the four living creatures in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5, these four living creatures are incredible. They're majestic. They're also bizarro looking. I mean, they got four faces and eyes in their armpits. I mean, that's a weird looking critter. And this is how God decided to surround himself in heaven with these creatures that are just very different from anything we're used to encountering on planet Earth. And the way that it was described, uh, it, it says that they had the face of an ox, the face of a lion, the face of a man, and the face of an eagle. And so just kind of picturing that, it's like, how do you have four faces, either one on each side of the head, or we don't exactly know. But the language is there describing the four living creatures to help us understand creatures of another realm that are very real. 
and they have a very real description, but their description is otherworldly. It's not of planet Earth. It's not, we can't get an exact picture here. So when uh, uh, we see uh, John, who wrote Book of Revelation, <coughs> when we see him here in this passage saying, I was freaked out, man. I saw these things coming out of this guy's mouth and looked like frogs or something. We just got to kind of get in John's head and go, something about their appearance was frog-like, though they weren't frogs. They were frogging creatures, okay? I mean, these are, these are impure spirits that looked like frogs, but, but that's, uh, that's what they'll look like. And remember when we studied the locusts that come out of the abyss in, uh, in chapter 9, we look at those and we're like, well, they look like locusts, sort of, but then they also have a face like a man and long women's hair. It's like, that's just, wow, these are interesting things here. So I just, I don't want us to just, uh, at, a, at a glance, go, okay, these are frogs. They're not, they're, they're demons, but they're demons that look like frogs, at least some aspect of them, okay? Why frogs? Why not turtles? or bumblebees. Why frogs? I don't have all of that figured out, but I will give you another one of those kind of correlation moments. When we're studying the book of Exodus and we see the judgments of Exodus when uh, the people of God were coming up out of Egypt, many, in fact, all of the plagues at some level in some way have some counterparts or some matching details to the judgments in the book of Revelation, except the frog factor. When you look at the plague of frogs, which is just a horrifying plague back in the day, the plague of frogs doesn't really have a book of Revelation equivalent, except, oh yeah, wait a minute, these three demons that come out of the mouths of the beast, the false prophet, and of uh, Satan, they all look like frogs. So I'm just going to read you that passage. Um, I've got it here at the top of page two. And again, these notes are available online. If you wanted to kind of go there and, and see them, they're on our website. Uh, if you're under recent teachings, you can see tonight's and the notes are there. Um, Exodus 8, 3 through 5, this is the plague of frogs back in the, uh, the time of Egypt. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your houses, your ovens, and your kneading troughs. The frogs will come up on you and your people and your officials. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the streams and canals and ponds and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Uh, Psalm 78 says similarly, he sent swarms of flies that devoured them and frogs that devastated them. You know, the, the worst part, just as a little reference point on the frogs, the worst part was when Moses was then instructed for all of them to die. And now you've got millions of dead frogs everywhere. I don't like one dead frog. I sure don't like having to shovel them. You know, it's like, that is just disgusting. And they were everywhere. They were in everybody's stuff. They, they said they were on Pharaoh. F frogs on Pharaoh. Pharaoh didn't want frogs on him. When you're the king of Egypt, you never want frogs on you. And it said that the frogs were on Pharaoh. And they were on Pharaoh's kids. And they were in the cooking rooms. And in the, they were everywhere. People's beds. Like, grib it, grib it. What's that? Uh, honey, is that you? It's a frog. Like, in the bed. They were just, it was a horrifying experience. And then they all suddenly died. And dead things stink. So while I don't have any more connection than that as far as why are these three demon spirits, why do they look like frogs, 
I don't know. I don't know why the four living creatures look exactly the way they do instead of some other group doing that particular task. But these are the three frog spirits that have been assigned to this particular task, okay? Well, let's look at a little bit of who they are, what they are, what they're doing. Details about these demons. And uh, do we have any report on the notes? Is there any update? What's that? Printed. Okay, so probably five or ten minutes or something. Okay, excellent. Um, all right, details about these demons. First, their mission. They are dispatched for a very specific purpose. I, I want us to, to understand that they're not just random. They're not just, you know, a lot of times when you read the New Testament and you read about these demons that were causing people hassle, there wasn't as clear of an assignment attached to these demons in the New Testament that we see operating. They were causing people problems, but they would leave one person and they'd go cause another person a problem. I mean, it wasn't, their assignment was more general as opposed to more specific. But what we see here is these three demons have a very specific assignment. And I just want us to recognize, I just want us to rem remember, at the end of the age, there will be way more people. This is a horrifying truth. There will be way more people worshiping Satan on purpose than there are on planet Earth worshiping Jesus. Way more people worshiping Satan. So it's not unfair to say that these three demon spirits, these three frog spirits, whatever they are, have a ministry assignment. Because they've got an assignment from the head, you know, God of the age, from the Antichrist. They've got a, a ministry assignment to serve his purposes, that they are working for his bidding. They're doing his will. They've got a very clear assignment. Now, this is a bit mysterious, but it says that they come out of the mouths, which if you come out of a mouth, that means you were down in the mouth, down there somewhere, esophagus, stomach, I don't know kidney. I don't know where you hide a demon frog, but these things were in there before they came out. So it's not like, you know, they just suddenly like got indigestion and boom, they got a demon frog in them and then they burp and then they come out. These three have got these three demon spirits in them, presumably for the whole of their ministry, the Antichrist, Satan himself, and the false prophet. Now in your, in the notes, whenever you wind up getting them, I gave you some ideas that I have that may not be accurate. They're just kind of getting you thinking down a road about when they got these spirits. But I'll just tell you, this is a very interesting thought process. Satan can have a demon. That's just, that is a really weird idea. And yet, I mean, not only can he, he does. And we know what it looks like. Satan has got a demon that looks like a frog in him, or at least he will. That is like the most mind-blowing idea. What a strange thing. And yet, as strange as that is, it's true. And there is so much about the spiritual realm that we just don't yet understand. We have a very finite understanding of spiritual things. There is so much going on. There is so much angelic activity in Arlington that we don't see. There's so much going on. We are completely unaware. And it's happening. And it's real. And one day we'll have eyes to see. We'll have a resurrected body with resurrected eyes and a resurrected mind, resurrected spirit. And we'll be able to see and witness all those things and even participate at an incredible level. But right now, there's so much about the spiritual realm that it's like a living creature seems like an impossible idea. A demon frog, a whatever. These things are just so far removed from our experience. But that doesn't make them untrue. Let every man be a liar and the word of God be true. 
okay? I just want us to root ourselves in what the Word says. And it doesn't much matter often if we like what the Word says, if we understand what the Word says. Of course, we want to reach for understanding. But you understanding is not a prerequisite for it being true or it being real. So I just want us to kind of default on that. Well, anyway, these three demon spirits are going to climb out of the mouth of Satan out of the mouth of the false prophet and out of the mouth of the Antichrist, and then they're going to go, and the work that they're going to go do is going to wind up giving them notoriety across the planet. It says they are going to go gather the kings of the earth for the final battle. So we know the final battle happens. Did you ever stop to think about how the kings all decided what day it was that they needed to go gather in Jerusalem to fight the final battle? They heard it, a little birdie. No, a little froggy told them. A little froggy told them what day to go to the final battle. That is the most bizarre idea. And it's Bible. That's actually what's going to occur. Here's the point I was trying to make. These frog spirits are going to have global notoriety. Right now, nobody's ever heard of them. They seem like the strangest thing. Why are we doing a session on them? There is coming a day where everybody on the planet will know who those demon frogs are. Because they're going to go to the kings and talk the kings into the final battle. That's their ministry assignment. Whoa, these are just... I mean, when you stop and read it and you just take it at face value, you go, there is, the book of Revelation is a wild ride. Like there is so much information in here. You just, that is so intense. There are really demons. Demons can really talk to people. And these demons, we know what they look like and we know what they'll say. And they're going to go to the kings and the kings are going to listen to them. That is just so crazy. Can you imagine being one of those kings and talking about your day to your wife after you get home? Like, what was your day like? Man, this frog came in. He was like weird looking and kind of, you know, charismatic. Like, I just kind of wanted to listen to him. He was saying crazy stuff, and I liked his ideas. Well, what did he say? Well, honey, back up. We're going to Jerusalem tomorrow. What a weird, weird way to get the thing done. Furthermore, just as a little bit of timing, for those of you guys who are tracking very closely to the timing here, and there's some of you in this room right now who really care about the timing of events, you really want to pay attention to these details. This event happens in the sixth bowl of wrath. There are only seven bowls. The seventh bowl is is in conjunction with the Battle of Armageddon, okay? This one is the pre, uh, is the, uh, you know, warm up. It's to get the scene ready. But the final bowl happens during the final battle, okay? So my point is, as far as the chronology of events and the timing of events, we are really, really, really close to the very end. Well, the entire period of the seven bowls of wrath only happens in a 30-day period of time. We get that out of Daniel chapter 12. Why does that matter? We've already had six bowls of wrath get poured out. There's only one more bowl left. All of these bowls have to happen in a 38 period of time. And before the final battle, these frogs have to get out of the mouths of these three dudes and then go and travel around the planet and have conversations with kings in order for kings to have heard a message, rallied their troops, and gathered to Jerusalem before the seventh bowl happens. These are like minutia details related to the timing of events because 
You, you can't get all the kings and all the armies of the earth to Jerusalem in 15 minutes. And especially with the broken infrastructure that we're going to be dealing with at that point related to all the different points of society that have been beat up by judgments and, and war and everything else. This is a really interesting detail because this tells us these demon frogs are going to be dispatched out of the mouths of these three guys, presumably in Jerusalem or around there. They're going to be dispatched, and then these three then have to go throughout the earth and have conversations with kings, and then the king has to respond, oh, that's a good idea, frog. Thanks for, for that. I'm so glad you spoke that into my ear. I'm now going to rally my armies, but that communication takes time. Then we have to travel from all the different nations of the earth to the battle of Armageddon outside of Jerusalem. That's like, that takes time. Those details require time and, and, and anyway, so I just want to point that out because that's, you know, for those of you who are super nerds, you want to know that one. All right, well, what do these frogs do? Well, they've got supernatural abilities. It says specifically that they were given miraculous signs, performing miraculous signs, and they go out to the kings. Why is that important? When they show up to those kings... They're equipped with signs because they need them. Because the king sees a weird-looking frog thing, and he's like, uh, yes, why are you here? Oh, I'm a frog that does miracles. You're a miracle-doing frog, are you? <laughs> Great. Well, who, who sent you? Oh, you know the Antichrist. He sent me. To do what? Convince you it's wartime. No, we're all done with war. No, I'm going to do these signs. I'm going to do miraculous signs and wonders to prove to you that I really am from the most important guy on the planet and that it really is time to go to war, rally the troops. The signs are not arbitrary. The signs are not neutral. They are to convince the kings that these frogs are actually messengers of Satan, of Antichrist, and that it's time to rally the troops. That is just... I mean, that is a whole series of books and movies in itself. Just right there. The, the activity, the ministry of the three demon frogs. I mean, it's like, what in the world? That is a crazy thing. They go around the earth and they talk to all the different kings. And they do these convincing signs. Now, I think that probably some version of time, space, something is probably in their wheelhouse related to travel. I just don't think they're going to have the time to grib it across all seven continents. And, I mean, what is that? Oh, that's one of those demon frogs. Well, where is he going? Oh, he's, you know, he's going to England. Well, does he know there's a big lake between here and there? Like, what's he going to do? I mean, I think that somehow or the other, these miraculous signs will include some sort of teleportation or something because there's just not enough time, even if you split the earth up into three, for these guys to cover the territory that they have to cover if there's not some supernatural assistance related to their, their traveling capacity. Does that kind of make sense? All right. They've got a dark anointing to gather. I just want to read that again. Revelation 16, 14 through 16, middle of the page on page three, Roman numeral three. They go out to the kings of the whole world, the whole world, not part, not some of the kings, all the kings, to do what? To gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. They gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So these kings go, or these uh, frogs go out to all the kings of the earth. Again, I just want you to think about 
Have you ever imagined the battle of Armageddon, the final battle, have been, being initiated by frog demons that were like really winsome in talk? They were able to say stuff and make you think it was a good idea and do signs in the heavens in order to convince you that what they're saying was accurate. That is like not how most of us are thinking the book of, the book of Revelation wraps up and the battle of Armageddon happens. It absolutely happens in connection to these three demon frogs. So while, again, it's like, how could we do a session on this? How could we not? These frogs have one of the most interesting and important, I mean, important from the kingdom of darkness standpoint, but important roles in the end time drama. They are the marketing arm of the Antichrist government. These three guys are running the Antichrist social media. I mean, it's like he, these three frogs are the ones that go and gather the kings of the nations. And I'll just tell you this. It's difficult to get kings to do anything. It's difficult to get them all to do the same thing. It's super difficult to get them all to do the same thing tomorrow. And these three, de these three might be the most anointed messengers in history. When you just look at the fruit of what they're able to accomplish in a week or something. I mean, it's like, this is unfathomable. All right. What are they gathering for? They're gathering for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. That's a term that we'll look at more in our next session. But it's, that's a big one. The day of God Almighty. It's his. The battle of God. The, the end-time battle, Armageddon, it's not Satan's battle. It's not, you know, the end of the world battle. It's God's battle. The battle of God Almighty. That's what the final battle is that we often refer to as Armageddon. To deceive the nations. They go quickly with great influence and they speak to the kings of the earth and they perform deceptive miracles. Just thinking about all the darkness that just occurred in the previous bowl. Remember, we're on bowl six now in this uh, session. But bowl five was the global darkness plague. Remember, it goes all dark for a minute. I think that part of the go all dark actually sets up things for this sixth bowl for a recruiting spree. I think all the kings that have been groping about, and not just the kings, all mankind that's been groping about in the darkness. It's this complete darkness that people couldn't leave their, their place, they couldn't go out. That darkness covering the earth, I think people will be looking for a solution, be looking for instruction, be looking for anything, hope. And they're told now by these three demon frogs, oh, there's hope. All we need to do is kill the guy responsible for all this stuff. Let's just go kill him. Let's go fight Jesus. Let's declare war against the lamb. They do it knowingly. They go to fight a war against the lamb. It's crazy, but that's what they're going to go do. And so I actually think that's part of the setup that makes it easier for this recruiting to happen. Now, we're going to look at a couple of details that are in this passage that I just thought it'd, be, it'd make more sense to cover tonight than uh, in the next session. And uh, in this same passage, let's talk about the importance of the Euphrates River being dried up. Six angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. Now, it's interesting. The Euphrates River, that's a real river. 
It's really over in the Middle East. It's the largest river in the Middle East. It's got great biblical, historical significance. It's been a, a natural boundary line between the Middle East and, uh, and, and the East you know, side of things. Uh, it's been a, a natural boundary line. Uh, and it's always been there as long as we've got biblical history. It's a really important river. Well, this long-standing boundary to the Far East is going to get dried up. Look at Isaiah 11, verse 15. Helps us to understand when this bowl is poured out on the Euphrates River, what occurs. So it's poured out on the river, but it says in, in Revelation uh, 16, it says, it was poured out on the river and it dried it up. Dried it up, why? To prepare the way for the kings of the east. This river is being dried up related to all the scenario of the whole Armageddon context, okay? Well, look at Isaiah 11, verse 15, tells us similarly, the Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea. It's one of the ways that we know that the Red Sea is going to be parted again, or at least dried up. With a scorching wind, he will sweep his hand over the Euphrates River. He will break it up into seven streams so that men can cross over in sandals. That's exactly what we're talking about. The Euphrates River drying up to prepare the way for the kings of the east because they're on that side of the river, but they're supposed to come to this side of the river. And when they do, they approach the river, they're actually going to be able to walk across as on dry ground or at least streams so shallow that men can walk across in sandals. I mean, that, that means there's no water because if you walk across a muddy river bottom in sandals, you're losing your shoes. You know, so the point here is that it's so dried up, there might be like little streams like six inches wide, but not like six feet wide. You know, like you're able to walk across in sandals is how dry this is going to be. All right, well, part of what's going on here is there's going to be a really limited um, use of modern devices by the time we get to the sixth and then the seventh bowl of wrath where uh, the battle of Armageddon is going to take place. <coughs> You've got decades of war, but three and a half years of intense war across the earth. Then you've got the judgments of God. And when you look at the impact of the seals, trumpets, and the bulls of wrath, guys, this is going to mess up some bridges. This is going to mess up some roads. It's going to mess up some airplanes and some boats and some trains and some automobiles. I mean, it, there is going to be so much, not that there'll be none left, but it, the infrastructure for travel will not look like it looks like right now by the time you, you get to the end of the bulls of wrath. The world is going to be pummeled. God will see to it. That's what the seven seals, trumpets, and bowls are all about. So limited resources, destroyed infrastructure. I put on there the bridges specifically because I just, I want you to think about how many bridges will have been bombed. I mean, if you're, if war continues till the end, and it will because that's what the word says, that means there will constantly be resistance to the Antichrist. As long as there's resistance, the following thought process makes sense. Antichrist, bad coming in armored vehicles, only way into our town, that bridge. Let's blow that bridge up. Let's not let them into our town. Let's at least not make it easy. There's going to be, I mean, I wonder how many bridges are going to be left. You might be able to count them on a hand. I mean, bridges are going to be a real point of blow up, all right, because they equal access points uh, that are, are made available. And so... 
You know, that's just going to be really, really interesting. All right, the kings of the east. This is the last point I want to cover tonight, and then we'll break into discussion groups. Kings of the east. This is actually a very interesting uh, subject. It's not one that I have a lot of depth on because there's not a lot of information there. But hopefully through just a, a little bit tonight, we can retrain our thinking related to the kings of the east. Now, we've read the you know, verse now a couple of times in Revelation 16. The Euphrates River is being dried up for a purpose, to prepare the way for the kings of the east. Well, who are the kings of the east? The kings of the east are actually probably not who we think they are. Let's look here in uh, part five, bottom of page five. A mighty movement of the Holy Spirit in the last days. We're familiar with this. There's going to be a coming revival. But look at one of the aspects of the revival, Isaiah 24. And for those of you who don't know Isaiah 24, it is one of the most intense end time passages in the entire Bible. I, I would put it right in there with Revelation 16. I mean, it is just so intense. Revelation 24 is an intense end times Bible passage, okay? says, they raise their voices, they shout for joy. This is actually talking about the believing movement. It's talking about the revival that's going to happen. They raise their voices, they shout for joy. From the West, they acclaim the Lord's majesty. Western nations acclaiming the Lord's majesty because they're watching the Lord do things that they have not been used to seeing him do in previous generations. The West experiencing the Lord's majesty in a profound way. Therefore, in the East, give glory to the Lord. Exalt the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, in the islands of the sea. And it goes on. Specifically, this references the East giving glory to the Lord. And it's not like, you better do it. I'm mad at you, East. I can't believe you're not giving glory to the Lord. It's prophesying what will happen. The Eastern nations will respond in that revival. They will be touched greatly by the coming revival. And they will give glory to the Lord. Well, right now in this hour... The modern nations that we would describe as the East from a Jerusalem uh, standpoint, those are not nations that historically love God in, by and large. Those are Hindu nations and Muslim nations, and those are nations that are not God-praising nations uh, in any sort of a loud way. They will be. There is coming a great revival that will touch the earth, and the East will will give glory to the Lord in a way that has never happened before. I don't mean there's never been people saved. Yes, there have been. Not like what's coming. There has never been a time that the East has glorified the Lord in the way that we're going to be looking at here. Now, why do I bring that up? One of the things that happens historically in revival, just kind of think about some of your some of what you know about the first and second great awakening in America. Okay, just kind of rest on that. One of the things that comes in revival is when revival comes in and the spirit of the Lord is resting in a town, lots of people give their lives to Jesus and lots of people still don't. But the ones that don't are still impacted by the glory of God in a way that causes them to be many times more open to the Lord. I don't mean everybody. But I do mean there's a bunch of people that don't get saved that are still impacted by the revival. They start watching their language. They start watching where they go, what they do. There's, when revival comes to a town, it doesn't just equal salvation. It oftentimes equals societal transformation, even amongst those that don't love Jesus yet. 
or never will. It equals significant impact. I don't mean everybody gets saved. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying there's people that get saved. There's people that will still hate God and they're not going to go for God at all. But then there's this third category that have not given their lives to the Lord, but are still impacted by the righteousness that accompanies revival. Okay. And they're more open to the the things of the Lord there. It's kind of like the church, the early church. It said that people were fearful to associate with them and yet they did. And they kept getting saved. But there's a guy who's fearfully associating today who's going to give his life to the Lord tomorrow or next week, but he hasn't done it yet. He's associating. He's trying to figure these people out. He's trying to figure out what's going on. That's part of what revival culture brings. Why do I bring all that up? Because in the time when the kings of the east are coming over, the rapture will have already taken place. Every saved person is now no longer in those towns anymore. They're not in any town in the east. But that doesn't mean the impact of the previous revival doesn't still remain. I think there will be a significant resistance to the Antichrist in the east because of the coming revival. And it won't even necessarily come entirely from Christians. Why does that matter? Well, let's look here at a couple of these verses and then we'll break up into groups. Revelation 16, 12, six angel poured out his bowl on the Euphrates River and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. So one thing we can be sure of, there are absolutely kings coming from the east that are for some reason treated differently in Revelation 16. They're treated differently than all the other kings. There's something about these kings that's like, let's make a special way for them to come. Uh, Let's dry up this river so it's easier for them to cross. And let's treat them differently or specifically than we would all the other kings. Well, what's going on there? Daniel chapter 11, uh, verse 42, gives us a little bit of insight into this. He will extend, this is talking about the Antichrist. He will extend his power over many countries. But reports from the east and the north will alarm him. And he will set out in great rage to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. Let me decode this, okay? Context. This is the Antichrist, and we know that the end of this passage, which is just like three verses, the end of this passage is the Antichrist and all of the evil kings with him are camped out in the valley of Megiddo outside of Jerusalem. Let me read it again. He will pitch his royal tents, Antichrist, between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain, Jerusalem. Between the Mediterranean Sea and Jerusalem, that's where he's going to pitch his tents. When does he do that? He only does that one time. It's the preparation for the Battle of Armageddon that's going to happen tomorrow or the next day or the next day. That's the only time the Antichrist does that. He pitches his tents with all the other guys, okay? It says, yet his end will come and no one will help him. That's, there is no more distinct way to say what's going to happen to the antichrist that day then his end will come and no one will be able to help him i mean it's just the crazy plagues that break out that day we'll get into uh, in the next session okay that's the context the context is the very 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 end right before the antichrist is going to go up against jesus for the battle of armageddon that's the context but did you catch what caught his attention reports from the east and the north that alarm him. This is not more of his guys coming. These are alarming reports of people coming that aren't his guys. And alarming reports 
of such a, uh, a proportion that it actually causes him to care. Who, who, who is coming and how many of them? What would be an alarming report for this guy who's got all these nations, all these kings, all ready for battle? Let me read it again. He'll extend his power over many countries, but reports from the east and the north will alarm him and cause him to set out in great rage to destroy and annihilate many. The kings of the east are coming and it bugs him. There's something coming from the east that is alarming. So when we read Revelation chapter 16 and we see that the Euphrates River is being dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east, this is not more antichrist guys coming. This is the report from the east of those that are coming that actually trouble him. The timing is that exact week. Remember I was telling you the whole 30 days and the, what's happening, how do these demon frogs get everybody to gather? This is a very narrow time frame. And in this very narrow time frame, that's when the Antichrist hears reports from the East that concern him and cause him actually to get up, go, and let's go do this Battle of Armageddon thing, okay? All right, so uh, Luke, how many groups we got tonight? Four groups of eight to nine. Okay, now who are my group leaders? Hands up. All right, Kate, uh, Christy, can I get you to move over here? Is that okay? Luke, you stay put. Andy, you're uh, going to be in the back. So groups of, uh, what do we say, eight to nine? Eight to nine. So move the chairs around, rally around. If they've got a hand in the air, that's one of the group leaders. Let's do some group discussion, and then we'll come back uh, together for uh, Q&A. So uh, pretty exacting uh, question. Uh, the, the question more or less boils down to, could the... Uh, report from the east be the remnant of Israel that is in some form of an eastern geographical uh, context, could that be what's referred to? I don't think so, but here's my reasons why, and uh, I'm just going to leave it at I don't think so. Um, the, the couple of reasons that are strongest to me. One, it's describing kings or significant leaders over significant people groups, and it's multiple it says, at least the, uh, the Revelation passage says, the kings of the east. And so to me, that is representative of uh, larger, uh, you know, entities, nations. Uh, we know that one of the points that's going to be such a significant point as we move towards the end is all the resistance back and forth, civil wars within nations. And so, you know, you just think about the guy who was in charge of Afghanistan, you know, two weeks ago, and now he's no longer. But there's still people that would look to him as, you know, the leader. And it's like they might still refer to him as their king, if you will, while there's a new uh, kingship in town that is now the recognized, more or less established kingship over that uh, territory. Reason I'm bringing that point up, it's if you might be going, why say all that? Because it talks about the kings of the nations being gathered to Jerusalem, and it makes it pretty clear all 256 nations' national leadership will be represented at the Battle of Armageddon. But that doesn't mean that there could not yet still be other kings, other groups, other peoples that are out there. So my first answer on why I don't think so uh, of these being Jews uh, from the East is uh, that it talks about there being kings. And second, uh, related to that, um, it's alarming enough. There's got to be something about the size of this group that's concerning. Uh, it, you just you wouldn't be concerned if it was like 
300 rowdy dudes. You know, that's not concerning for the Antichrist who's been taking over the planet. There's got to be something about this report that is a, a problem, that, that, that is, you know, noteworthy. Uh, and, uh, and, it, and it says it's alarming to him. I would think if it was Jews, he would be excited that he found a group of Jews to go after, uh, as opposed to alarmed by this group of Jews. Uh, but then my third point would be, I, I'm not... Uh, it, it, nothing's coming to mind, and if anybody knows a Bible verse, bring it up you know, at some point and, and let me know. I'm not, I can't come up with any uh, verses that are coming to mind that talk about Israel being in any sort of military offensive during the uh, final stages of uh, the Great Tribulation. I can't think of any Bible verses. No, no, not coming to mind. All the posture that I'm thinking of related to Israel during during this period of time is they're running, they're in prison camps, they're being rescued by the Lord, they're out in the wilderness, they're uh, you know being protected that way. There's nothing about that I that I can think of. There's nothing that speaks of a military offensive, that, and perhaps the biggest group of Jews are those that are scattered across the nations, which will be gathered back to Jerusalem after uh, Jesus is uh, enthroned king in Jerusalem. So I'm just not thinking of any strong military language related to Israel in this time frame, uh, this specific time frame. So I, I don't think so, but I love that, uh, that reach of thought process. Like, okay, well, where do the Jews fit in in this time period? How, how do they relate? So I, I think it's a great question. Uh, okay, let's go over here, Luke. Two phases or one? Yeah, so the question is, these kings of the east, so let's say they've got a bunch of armies with them. Is this battle fought before the Battle of Armageddon, or is it fought at the Battle of Armageddon? Is this like another advancement, like Jesus is coming out of Jerusalem and the kings of the east are coming down from the north or something? You know, I don't know. Uh, it the the part that makes me think it happens before, though I don't want to be dogmatic about this point. The part that makes me think about it before is he's alarmed and he he gets his guys to go deal with it. So that makes it sound like to me he's going to handle this threat before the final battle. Uh, it doesn't say that, but that's, that's the tone that I'm reading uh, related to his response to the report that comes, uh, is that he is going to deal with it. And since it's not mentioned, and again, this is not a good argument, this is just another point, it's not mentioned specifically that I can think of in any... Uh, uh, Armageddon battle campaign moment uh, that there are forces that are at play beyond the ones coming out of Jerusalem under Jesus' leadership. It doesn't mean that they're not there. And it doesn't mean that there's not a Bible verse out there. I'm just not thinking of one. Um, so, but I kind of hope it is. I mean, I kind of hope there's there's dudes coming at him from the north, from the east. I just I hope he's got more going wrong in his world than just uh, a resurrected army under the leadership of Jesus. So, um, of course, that's already a bad day for him. Okay, yeah. My whole point was the impact of the revival equaling that there would be people in that area that didn't all take the mark of the beast. Not that they were saved. Okay. That there was a significant group of people impacted by the revival that would be less prone to take the mark of the beast because they had just been experiencing a season of revival previously. Okay, so then the question is, who's the north? So the north, great question. Uh, the north talks 
often about uh, Israel's historic enemies coming from uh, from the northern areas. Uh, they would they're two historic. Uh, well, three really, if you include Egypt, but but Egypt was more of a a nemesis because of the sting that was left in their uh, history because of the Exodus. Then Egypt was a constant threat. That Egypt wasn't as constant a threat. The two threats were to the northeast was Babylon and uh, you know Assyria, and then uh, to the uh, to the north was uh, Ben. Benahedazar, I forget, I forget how you say his last name, um, but was the was the tribes of of the northern uh, portion of Assyria that would often come and plague uh, Israel. So, in modern context, you're talking about uh, Muslim nations. You're talking about you know all the way up even into Turkey, uh, and. Uh, while I didn't include it in this study, there's a significant amount to say about the role of the, uh, the influence of the North and the role that it plays uh, related to Israel in the, in the last days. In fact, that passage, Daniel chapter 11, Daniel chapter, I believe it's 7 and 9 and 11, 10 and 11, all deal with the war that's going on before the uh, Battle of Armageddon in the in the season of time before, and much of that is in relationship to the kings of the north, the the resistance that he's finding in the north. So, all of that is a, a long answer to say I don't know exactly what people groups it is, but it's very clear that that is not a new to that moment problem for Antichrist. He will have been facing opposition from northern resistance uh, throughout that uh, that portion uh, of time. So, great. And then last one over here. Yeah, great, great question. First question, what kind of signs are we talking about? It says that they're they're anointed with signs and the signs are contextually to be able to convince the kings to actually come to the battle. What are these signs? And second part of the question is, with the Antichrist's influence over the whole earth <coughs> and with his you know, track record and with his uh, oppressive hand and his you know, grasp of the earth, why is it even needed that these demon frogs need to be anointed in order to be able to convince everybody? Why is, why is that a necessary component? Couldn't the Antichrist just snap his fingers and everybody do uh, what they're supposed to do? More or less the question? Yeah. So these signs, well, historically, when you're talking high-level prophet, which I know this is a bizarre thing, but the three battle toads are now going to be the high-level prophets of the land, okay? And these high-level prophets, uh, historically, high-level prophets dealing with signs, it's signs in the heavens because no person can manipulate that. And so there's signs in order to go. It's not like you're doing something, you know, on the earth. It's like I prophesy a bus will come by tomorrow, and, and buses always come by, and that's that's nothing. There's no news. It's like I prophesy the sun will stop and go back, you know, three steps. Oh, well, that's new. Uh, that's that's the kind of signs that I believe are being uh, alluded to, because anything less than that will be a no biggie you know, so what? Because of all the demonic signs that have already been occurring. These signs need to be at least the level of signs that the false prophet was operating in, if not even more. Now, why? Well, a couple of thoughts, and I, I, don't, I don't have a, a definitive answer, but I, I think a couple of thoughts would be 
One, we've got to recognize human frailty. Let's. Uh, this is going to go a little bit of a side note, but I think it's healthy for us to have these kinds of conversations uh, in, in, in the midst of all this. When you are in love with Jesus and you are giving him your all, you are still very much prone to sin because of your human weakness. You're, you're prone to weakness, even as someone that loves the Lord. I'm talking about the season of time where you're really running after Jesus. You are still able to not do the right thing. You are a human being that does not always do what you want to do for Jesus. Okay? Just because these worshipers are worshipers of the Antichrist does not make them superhuman, robot, you know, infallible, always do exactly what they're supposed to do the second they're supposed to do it, guys. They are humans that will be worshiping the Antichrist. They'll be fully bought in, but they're not superhuman. Not in intellect, not in heart, not in stamina. And they have been going through it, through the, uh, the judgments. Most recently, they will have just been in the dark for some days, probably. They've been dealing with all their water turning to blood. There is a, a, um, a, there, the, the setting is, the scene is set for there to be a, uh, decreasing belief in the Antichrist and, and the dragon's, uh, supremacy because bad things keep happening to the planet under the Antichrist and the dragon's rule. If the dragon and the Antichrist are so big and bad, why is it that mean old God is able to do all of these things and cause so many problems? I think that there's going to be divisions within the Antichrist government. There's going to be weakness within the human flesh. There's going to be all these details that come into play that make the Antichrist's leadership not a perfect, he says left and everybody happily salutes and goes left. I think there's going to be human dynamics as well as all of the unforgiveness and the I haven't drank anything but blood in a week. I mean, there's just going to be a lot of details uh, that play into it. So I think these uh, anointed uh, demon frogs and their message, I think that anointing that rests on them to deceive and to do the signs and wonders will actually be necessary. And I think it's actually for us, it's a little bit of an indicator of the spiritual climate and the loyalty climate of what's going on in the Antichrist world and Antichrist government, that he would even need this final push of these three anointed demon frogs. Does that kind of make sense? Okay. Well, Lord, we thank you so much for the word. We thank you that there is just no end to your creativity. The way that you wrote this story, it is incredible. And we pray in Jesus' name that you would give us grace to understand the details, that we take the time to stare at the text and read it and talk about it and think about it and pray about it. And that you would give this group that's committed to understand your end time plan, you'd give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in Jesus' name. Amen. This concludes this teaching from the prayer room. For more resources or to schedule another TPR teacher to come speak at your church or event, please see our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. Thank you.